0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. So if you don't mind, I'd like you to join me in reading the scripture today. It comes from the book of Acts, chapter 7. Verses 55 to 60, you can follow along in your uh, mobile devices, or you can read it from the screen, or if you like the old hardcover version of the Bible, it's on page 889 in the Pew Bibles that are there. I'll give you a second to find that, but this tells the story of the early church, the disciples. Um, of course, Jesus has left and gone to heaven, and the disciples are now are experiencing what it's like to live together following Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. So this comes from Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 60. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay, wait a minute, what's going on? We've obviously just dropped into some kind of a major conflict where people are carrying out murder against somebody named Stephen. So there's lots of questions that immediately pop into our mind. First of all, who is this mob that is stoning Stephen? Who was Stephen, and what did he do to get into such a perilous situation? What did he say to set the mob off on this murderous rampage? Well, I'll attempt my best impression in Ego Montoya and say, let me explain. No, wait, it's too much. Let me sum up. Okay, Stephen was a Greek Jewish Christian. Now that calls for a little bit of explanation, first of all. He was Jewish, first of all, but he was not from Palestine. He was from one of the other Greci- Grecian colonies in the Mediterranean world. And he had become a convert to Christ- Christianity. So, therefore, he was a Greek Jewish Christian. Now, he was among those who had been chosen to serve the food to the widows among the early Christian community. As it grew so fast, the original 12 disciples, minus, of course, Judas, who had been replaced by another disciple, they couldn't keep up with the demands of taking care of the whole community of believers. So as they grew, they appointed other people to help them with the ministries. Stephen was among those who were some of the Greek Christians who were tasked with providing food to all of the Greek... Christian widows. Apparently, there were a lot of them because they needed food distributions daily. And so Stephen was given that task. And according to chapter 6 in the book of Acts, Stephen was especially gifted. Um, It's three different times he's given us a description that kind of follows the same pattern. In one place, it says that he was full of the Spirit and wisdom. In another, he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And in the third place, he says, it says that he is full of God's grace and power, and he performed great wonders and signs among the people. So this seems like it would be the kind of man who would rise to the top of the religious order, the structure system there, right? Well, wrong. For some reason, some other Jewish leaders, not necessarily Christians, but Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, uh, they opposed Stephen's actions or his message or both, and they trumped up some ac- accusations against him. They said that he broke the laws of Moses, which, of course, was a a major blasphemy and a sin, and they said that he spoke blasphemy against God. Um, So he was brought up before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Jewish council in Jerusalem, um, on some kind of a trial on these trumped-up charges. So Stephen then responds by not necessarily defending himself, but he gives this big, long speech, which is recorded in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Acts. It's the longest recorded speech of anyone in the New Testament, except maybe Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, So it's for Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, it must be important, for some reason, that's what Stephen said and what happened to Stephen. So that's why we're looking at his story today. This long speech that Stephen gives is basically a history lesson uh, for the council, which they probably already knew. Uh, He affirms their common heritage, goes back to Abraham as the father of the Jewish people. And then he especially focuses on Moses and the esteem that everybody that's Jewish has for Moses and his laws, the laws that God gave him, the Ten Commandments and all of the Jewish laws that go along with it. He and Stephen also recognized the importance of the temple in Jerusalem as the place where Jewish people came specifically to offer their worship and their sacrifices to God. they experienced the presence of God in a particular way there at that temple. But then Stephen also talks, he starts changing direction just a little bit in his speech. He recognizes that God is not necessarily confined just to that temple or to any space, that, for that matter. God's available to anyone with or without a temple. <clears throat> and that's where he brings in the story of Jesus, where Jesus has opened the way for everyone to have access to God, not just through the priesthood in Jerusalem and not just at the temple. Um, so, therefore, No more do we need any religious gatekeepers to have the presence of God. And then Stephen completes his turn by really turning against the council members. He lays accusations on them. He says, he accuses them that they are the ones who have disobeyed the laws of Moses, and they have ignored and they have persecuted those who God has sent, the prophets and especially Jesus, the Son of Man. Now that is where the council really gets upset with him. Just a few verses before what we read today as our main scripture, um, this is what Stephen says. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed Betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Naturally this did not go over very well with that audience there, and so they started gnashing their teeth. The members of the Sanhedrin, when they heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. That's verse fifty four. So this final nail in Stephen's coffin, so to speak, came from a vision that he had. He saw he reported seeing the resurrected Jesus at God's side. He said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So this vision um, basically is a claim that Stephen sees that everything that Jesus said and did has been vindicated by God, um, including asserting that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And at the same time, it's a condemnation of the council and their, their rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was still alive or alive again at God's right hand meant that he was raised to new life, and he was now, Jesus, was standing in judgment over the very council that had condemned Jesus to death. So from the council's point of view, you can imagine how they would feel about that. Claiming to see a human at the right hand of God, condemning them and judging them, uh, that was considered blasphemy. And so therefore, they rushed at Stephen in this rage of anger and violence, and they began stoning him. So that's basically the the context, the setting, and what happened here in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today. So a couple of observations to take from this story. Stephen was, uh, along with the earliest Christians, were all Jewish. Um, They valued the temple and the laws of Moses. They didn't break with those completely. Um, They believed and they followed what Jesus said. Jesus claimed that he did not come to replace the law, but to fulfill it which is something that some Christians have a hard time remembering from time to time. We tend to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and ignore the stories and the, and the teachings and the laws behind it and seem to focus just on the New Testament. But really, it's all one smooth, integrated story once you learn how to read it right and once you um, focus on what Jesus said about the Old Testament and the prophets. Stephen is trying to do this as well. And Jesus' disciples, uh, the earliest Christians, they follow Jesus' example in this. And that's the way discipleship works. That's how to be a follower of Jesus. You follow in Jesus' steps. So, for example, let's look at the way that Stephen dies. Stephen is surrounded by this council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. Jesus was surrounded by the Sanhedrin at his trial. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Stephen says that he sees the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. Jesus told his accusers, From now on, you will see see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And because of this, Stephen was accused of blasphemy, and so was Jesus because of that. Stephen is dragged out of the city. Jesus was led or paraded out of the city. As Stephen dies, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As Jesus died, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Stephen also prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Like Jesus, Stephen spoke out against sin and corruption in the high places, especially in the religious establishment. So you can see that Jesus, or Stephen, is following very closely in the footsteps of Jesus. And became what we know as the first Christian martyr. Now, the word "martyr" is actually a Greek word, which literally means witness. So, Stephen is basically witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that he is still alive; he is now alive again in, in God's presence as the, the judge and the um, right hand at the right hand of God. So, that's his witness. Um, the fact that his witness <clears throat> took him all the way to death kind of became associated with this word of witness. And so now, what we think of as a martyr usually, technically, um, also means that you gave your witness to, um, for Christ to the point of your own death. Um, the Catholic Church makes a distinction between those who have confessed Jesus in, uh, to other people but not died, and those who have confessed Jesus and died, and they are considered martyrs. So usually that's kind of the normal understanding of what we think of as a martyr, as someone who has died for their faith. But the important part of that is that they are a witness to Christ for their faith, and therefore they've been killed. Um, Christianity has a long history of martyrs, a rich and deep history. One of the earliest martyrs was named Polycarp. He was a bishop of a city in uh, Central uh, Asia called Smyrna. He was burned at the stake and then pierced with a spear because he refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. Of course, to be a loyal Roman citizen, you had to pledge your allegiance to the emperor and offer different sacrifices. And of course, Polycarp refused to do that. Um, When he was uh, led to his death, he gave this kind of little eloquent uh, statement that's fairly well known in church historian circles. He said he was elderly. So he said, and six years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And those were his last words before he was killed. Um, during the first couple hundred years of Christianity, um, it's, that's also known as the age of the martyrs because there were so many different martyrs uh, during that time when uh, official Roman policy and local policies as, as well um, kind of flared up in violence against Christians. Um, another famous couple of, of martyrs are Perpetua and Felicita. They died um, in Carthage in northern Africa um, during this same time period. Uh, Perpetua was a noble woman, rich and from a good family, and was fairly young. She just had a baby and uh, had just gone through the, the um, teaching cycle and was about to be baptized as a new believer. Uh, Felicitas was a slave who was also a new mother, and they gave up their children before they were in prison because they refused to offer sacrifices to the emperor, the Roman emperor. Um, so they were separated from their babies, put in prison, held there for a couple of years, then finally were led to the arena during some gladiatorial games and uh, killed in, in that, at the first day of the games. They were a part of a group that were actually killed that day. Um, at the demand of the crowd, the bloodthirsty crowds show up for those gladiatorial games, um, they were first scourged or whipped by a whole line of gladiators. Um, and then the men who were with them um, were set upon by a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. And a wild cow was turned loose on the women. Um, after they were wounded but not killed yet, um, they gave each other the kiss of peace, and then they were killed by the sword, by an executioner. Um, In the 16th and 17th centuries, there were a number of martyrs in Japan. Spanish and Portuguese missionaries went to Japan and spread the gospel. A number of Japanese people converted. And then because of the popularity of Christianity, the shogun of Japan at that time um, declared that Christianity was illegal and began a series of persecutions. Um, If anybody saw the movie Silence, did anybody see that or hear about it? Um, Martin Scorsese recently, just this last year, made a film about those missionaries and the trials and persecutions that they endured. Um, and a number of Japanese and Spanish and Portuguese uh, Christians were killed, um, often by crucifixion um, or other hideous ways, um, as part of that persecution in Japan. Closer to our time, in 1980, there was a famous uh, bishop of San Salvador in Central America, Oscar Romero. He spoke out, he was a a Catholic priest and an archbishop. He spoke out against poverty and social injustice and the political assassinations and tortures that were going on in that country. Um, And he was kind of marked out for persecution. The the government came down on him, or the guerrillas, I guess, did. Um, In one sermon, I think it was in March of 1980, he delivered a sermon in which he called on the Salvadorian soldiers who were technically, supposedly Christians, um, he asked them to obey God's higher order, not their superiors in the military, and stop carrying out the government's repression. Um, the next evening, he was celebrating mass at a little uh, church-sponsored hospital, and as he finished speaking, he stepped down to the altar to uh, serve communion, and a car came up outside the chapel, burst in, and a gunman shot him twice, hit him in the heart, and he died. Um, He's considered a modern-day martyr because of his faith and what he was teaching and believing. And uh, someone, a hitman, they think, sponsored by the government, uh, killed him. Um, In 1995, there was a Catholic nun in India, not Mother Teresa, but another Catholic nun, uh, Mariam Vatalil was her name. She was stabbed by a hitman on a bus as she was traveling back to her uh, mission station. She had 40 major stab wounds and 14 bruises that they discovered afterward. And the murder was arranged by some landlords who were upset because she was working among the landless poor, um, who, of course, were the ones who were being preyed upon by these rich landlords. So they hired a hitman to assassinate her. So she's considered a martyr as well. Um, You'll notice a fairly common theme with lots of these martyrs, and there are many, many more stories like this, where people uh, Christians who are either speaking or acting um, out um, acting on their beliefs um, that run afoul of political power structures, whether it be in the religious department or political department or in the case of um, in India, those rich landlords, um, those who are in power and have money um, have something to lose, and so when they come up against a Christian who is acting or speaking. Um, challenging them, oftentimes the result is a new martyr. Uh, Christianity is a dangerous faith. Uh, The powers that be, whether they might be religious or political, um, or sometimes, many times, a combination of the two, um, will often react violently against Jesus' followers because their primary loyalty is to the kingdom of God, not to money or political power or their country or their race or their family. So through the years, European uh, kings, Roman emperors, presidents, the military, even employers and maybe family, they might ask for our loyalty, but those who follow in Jesus' steps can only promise truth and honesty, and our ultimate loyalty belongs only to God. The more that God's presence is in our lives, in our ministry, um, the more it's going to make us stand out. Uh, in the world that we live in, and the more likely we are to encounter oppression or opposition and sometimes that might even come from within the church. Um, a recent um, expert who studies modern day martyrs and persecutions of Christians in other countries um, he says that about two thirds of the two point three billion Christians in the world today live in dangerous neighborhoods and are at risk for martyrdom they 're often poor, he says. They often belong to ethnic or linguistic or cultural minorities, and that puts them at risk um, with the power structures where they live and therefore their faith will often bring them into opposition with um, the non Christian uh, powers that be now we don 't necessarily in our country in our context here don 't necessarily face technical martyrdom um, that would lead to lead to death or perilous situations, um, but there are two aspects of Christian martyrdom that we can learn from those who have gone before us, I think that we can appropriate into our living witness. We don't necessarily have to be um, killed as a martyr, but our witness can be a living witness as well. Um, The first has to do with forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, martyrdom was not a new thing with Christians. Uh, There were centuries of stories before Jesus came of Jewish martyrs. Um, Jewish people who refused to bend to the Greek and the Roman emperors who demanded that they give up their religion and that they offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. And Jewish people for many years have resisted that. They kept their religious identity by following the laws of Moses and by refusing to honor any other gods or idols. Um, So those stories... Um, Are found in some books of the Bible. Um, In the Catholic Bible, there's a central section called the Apocrypha that has the books of the Maccabees. The Maccabees are some some famous resistors, Jewish resistors against a Greek uh, tyrant, Epiphanes. And there are lots of stories of Greek or Jewish martyrs in those stories. And the Jewish people also, before Jesus, believed in resurrection. That is, that they would be raised to new life um, when the Messiah came. Um, But in all of those stories, they also expected God to judge those who killed them, and they expected retribution, and they called down curses on those who were killing them. Um, With the Christian martyrs, we have a different story, a different twist to that. They bring a new element to martyrdom, which is forgiveness. Uh, Sir Thomas More um, was a famous martyr, for Protestants anyway. Catholics sometimes consider him a heretic. Um, because he was with Henry VIII in England when H- England was trying to decide whether or not to be Protestant or Catholic. Um, Thomas More was a legal advisor to Henry VIII, and he um, opposed Henry VIII's um, desire to separate from the Catholic Church. He opposed Henry VIII's desire to divorce his wife so that he could marry another woman. Um, He also opposed Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. Henry wanted to be the boss, the pope, basically, as king. He wanted control over all of the religion in England. And Thomas More resisted that idea as well. He thought that the the church and the political powers in 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 the kingdom, the king, should be separate. Because of that, he refused to take an oath of loyalty or of supremacy to Henry VIII. So he was convicted of treason, and he was beheaded. Um, At his execution, he said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. He was putting God before king, and that's what led him into trouble. But the interesting thing is, while he was in prison before his execution, he was reading the story of Stephen, and he drew out this poignant detail that was in in our text that we read today and we kind of pass over it, but Thomas More noticed it, and it's very interesting. He noticed the statements about this young man named Saul who was there approving Stephen's stoning. He was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen as well. He got to thinking what would happen because Saul, of course, later was converted to Christianity and changed his name to Paul. He became a famous apostle and one of the, you know, the most important saints in the Christian church. So he, Thomas More began wondering what would happen... After death and in heaven, if St. Stephen and St. Paul ran into each other. Wouldn't that be a bit awkward? The blessed St. Paul, he said, this is some words that St. Thomas, uh, that St. Uh, Sir Thomas Moore wrote um, as he was in prison. And then he spoke these words just before his execution. He said, the blessed Apostle Paul, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, was present and consented to the death of St. Stephen in fact, he kept their clothes of those who stoned him. And yet they are both now holy saints in heaven and shall continue there as friends forever. And then he, had, he applied that to his own situation. <clears throat> He's talking to the, the judges and the, and the lords who condemned him to death. To them he says, Likewise, I verily trust and shall right heartily pray that though your lordships have now on earth been judges to my condemnation, that I pray that we may hereafter in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting salvation. Can you believe that? Could you do that? He's hoping that he runs into these people that have condemned him to death. He he hopes that he will meet them in heaven and they will be together merrily, (laughs) merrily in heaven all together. Just as Stephen and Jesus before him prayed for those who were persecuting and killing them, Thomas More prayed that he and his opponents would be reconciled at the great resurrection. So that is one of the new things that Christian martyrs bring to this element of martyrdom. And of course, that serves as a vivid fulfillment of what Jesus taught his disciples back when he was on earth. Blessed are you, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets before you, So shall you be persecuted. So, for us, maybe the lesson is as faithful servants of the Gospels, we should expect maybe the same thing. We must be willing to follow the path of the cross and lay down our hopes of power or influence or position, as well as any desire to avenge whatever suffering we might be experiencing. We must be prepared to truly love our enemies to the very end and offer them forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the first thing. The second thing I think we can take from the story of Stephen and the other martyrs is the idea about vision. Stephen talks about this vision that he has of Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. He sees very clearly, um, standing at the brink of death, of course, he can see both the earthly world and into the heavenly world, where the two worlds are intersecting, which they rarely do, but every every now and then, we can see that, and Stephen experienced that at his stoning. Um, so to have the courage and faith to be a witness, a faithful witness, or even a martyr, takes a vision. Now, some visions we, we can't help but have. I mean, they, they come to us as a gift. Um, it just happens. There are famous mystics and visionaries in the Christian tradition, St. Francis of Assisi, um, St. Catherine of Siena. They all had visions come to them, and it changed their life and their ministry um, and the world for the better. Um, But sometimes we don't have a choice. Sometimes we have to um, wait for a vision to come to us. It's not something that we can, you know, generate on our own. And that's what happened to Stephen. He was in this room full of angry men who hated him, um, and yet at that moment he had this wonderful vision of Christ. He didn't see the angry eyes and the clenched fists and the, the red faces that were rushing at him. All he saw was the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So when our faithfulness leads us to the greatest opposition, that's when we can encounter the great blessings of our Father. Another story, which happens <clears throat> again in England, uh, about 20 years after the death of Thomas More 1556, the Archbishop of Canterbury was burned at the stake for treason and for heresy, Um, The queen at that time was a Catholic queen, Mary I, and his offense was supporting Protestant reformations in England, uh, such as letting the clergy be married. Um, He believed in the spiritual, not the physical presence of Christ in the elements of communion. Um, He he was revising the worship of uh, of all the churches in England, Um, lots of different reforms, And so Queen Mary, who wanted the nation to be Catholic, of course, um, ordered him to be killed for treason. And his dying words were these, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, echoing the words of Stephen, the very first martyr. This archbishop's name was Thomas Cranmer, the man who was the driving force behind the Book of Common Prayer. He was burned at the stake for his beliefs. Now, those are kinds of visions that come to us um, unexpectedly, um, and not all of us will experience those. But there is a kind of vision that we can have, and that's what I want to think about today. Uh, When I talk about vision, I don't talk about having a vision, but having vision. That is, what we focus our lives and our minds and our hearts on as the driving force of all of our decisions and our actions and our words. What I would call vision would be an intentional, sustained, and spirit-infused focus on Christ. Intentional, that is, we have to be purposeful about wanting to focus on Jesus. And sustained because it's not something that we just do when we feel like it. It has to be a commitment, one of those open-ended commitments that we talked about at the beginning of this message today. Um, it's something that happens over time, and our commitment and our discipleship will grow if we are committed to it over time. And it has to be Spirit-infused. This is not something we can generate and do on our own. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church to help us maintain that sustained focus on Christ. But once that sustained focus on Christ. Is in place, it will override all of our other concerns, our other priorities, our other relationships. And if you don't have any other ultimate attachments, then courage and love and faith will become natural responses to these other challenges that we face in life. That um, martyr that I told you about from India, Maryam Vitali, as she was bleeding to death on that bus from all of the stab wounds, she kept repeating just the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it wasn't a repetition of despair or even an accusation, but it was basically her testimony, her martyrdom of her faith in Christ. So that's what I'm asking for us today to think about, church. Um, as we try to be humble and faithful servants of Jesus, just like Stephen was, we'll come, to face, we'll come face-to-face with people, ideas, things that will oppose us, even those who simply don't even know anything about Christianity. Um, That will help us to be faithful witnesses um, if our vision is fully and intensely focused on Jesus so that we're only reflecting him. And that way we'll reveal the glory of God ourselves to our world.